Hi, this is Amber, and you're listening to Amber on Podcast. Hello, and welcome to episode number 30 of Amber on Podcast. In honor of our subject matter today, we are skipping the music and heading straight to the content, which is real. Really, really real and really, really important. Important to your well-being, important to your health, important to the health of your loved ones, important to the health of your family, your parents, your brother, your sister, your friends. Today, we are talking about our minds, our brains, our mental state of being and what we do, what we say and what we do not say to each other on a daily basis. How do these interactions affect us? How do we respond to the people we encounter? How do we impact the people we encounter? One of my favorite life lessons, something that I call my favorite life reminder. Life reminders are principles of life that I try to remind myself of often, as often as needed, which really just means as often as I need to correct myself when I am being unkind impatient, short, terse, bitter, cold. I can be any of these things. Or worse, I can be all of these things at once. But I don't want to be that. I don't want to get myself so stressed or worked up or anxious that I change my behavior and in turn change the energy around me. I want to find ways that release me from that behavior. I want to find ways that can help to remind me how to get out of that behavior and how to be better. And one of my favorite ways to train myself for better behavior is to remind myself of these life reminders or best practices if you want to be more technical. In this case, I remind myself that I am bringing energy, my energy, to every encounter that I have each day. And it's up to me to either bring the energy up or bring the energy down. I can never keep it the same. None of us can. I know if you listen to the show, you've probably heard me say this before. It's challenging to try to remember and even more challenging to actually behave this way, to actually bring the energy up. Or in my personal practice, I like to try to bring the energy up by focusing on the positive, which can be painful to carry out at times, especially in a corporate environment or in the case of a horrible tragedy where everyone is so sad and I'm desperately searching for the light in the situation. I am painfully optimistic and I pride myself on finding the good in everything. But I am also human, and sometimes I disappoint myself with my own behavior, and sometimes I am disappointed by other people's behavior. But because I am a passionate optimist and I want to find the good in everything, even when I see others behaving badly, I try, though I do not always succeed, I try to empathize. The thing is, We have a major and so far insurmountable problem with our brains is that we try to make sense of everything, which is natural. But too often when we can't make sense of something, we dismiss it as wrong, uh, irrelevant, bias, or worse, we make it our opponent or challenger. When someone is reacting differently to us, we are confused for sure, but soon after we cycle through the first stage of confusion, we reach an understanding. We understand in some way who the person is or what they are doing, and we we fit it into our brains. 
our brains, with our mold of the world, based on our own unique experiences. Each and every one of us is doing this. And then when we see, when what we see doesn't, doesn't find an automatic placement, automatic fit into our brains, well, we have to assign one. We have to find a place to put this new person or action or thing into our brains. And often when we do this, we further limit ourselves from understanding the complexities of this new thing. What's more, if we discover a new facet or a new characteristic of this new thing, uh, rarely do we assign, reassign it in our minds. When they say the first impression is the last impression, this is what they mean. Now, the good news is that it's not actually true. The good news is that we can completely change the way we think about something or someone. We can change the way we do something. We can change the way we perceive something. We can do all these things because of brain plasticity. And science has proven that we can completely rewire our brains as needed. And if we really focus, we can rewire our brains on demand. Now, you might be thinking, of course, we can rewire our brains. That's no surprise. But what I am focusing on today and what I am asking you to focus on, dear listeners, is the revisit rewire. What I I mean by the revisit rewire is I want you to revisit something and give it another thought, a new consideration. Look at it as much as you are able to, as much as you can. Look at something with new eyes and new ears and give it a new and fresh perspective. Because I guarantee you have never, ever heard a story like this before. And I also guarantee that after you hear this story, you will have a fresh perspective indeed. So in honor of our brains and in honor of the Revisit Rewire, let's start the show. I've said it once and I'll say it again. I love to change my mind. I don't love to be wrong. I want to be clear. I want to clear that out the way right now. I do not love to be wrong. I love to be right like every other human in these streets. But I do believe that one of the things that sets me apart from the other humans in the streets is that I love changing my mind. I, I, I don't mean deciding to have the chicken instead of the fish. I mean a real shift in perception or belief. Like, I used to think that this group was this way because of this, but now I believe it's because of that, or I don't believe it at all. This is also one of the reasons I love reading nonfiction so much. I'm constantly reading and researching and waiting, waiting for someone to change my mind. I love the hunt for new information. This is also why I love TED Talks. Shout out to TED Talks. I love the hunt for new information, the kind of information that will alter my own perception of the world. This story did just that. It changed me. And it will change you too. It's a story unlike any other you have heard from someone I guarantee you have never heard from. I want to say now and up front that this person also jumped from the Golden Gate Bridge, but more on that later. We have so much to learn, dear listeners, and I know you love to learn, as do I. This story starts out in a place of love. A couple meets, they fall in love, they have a baby, and then another baby. But this couple is not well. Even though 
they are technically parents. They are hardly parenting because they have another priority, one that far outweighs the health and well-being of their children. And they have, they have to get their drugs. They are drug addicts, and they are really, really bad off. So bad that the cops are called, and these two babies are taken out of the home which really isn't a home at all, when the cops come to pick up the babies and place them in foster care, they have to write a report, right? And in this report, they have to detail the circumstances that they found the two babies in. And the description reads, babies are naked in their own filth on top of a box spring with dangerous drugs and drug paraphernalia nearby. If the babies had gotten a hold of any of these things, they could have died. This was an impossible place for a baby. No baby should be there. No baby was safe there. And the parents of the babies were all strung out. And so the San Francisco police came and took the babies out of the home and placed them into foster care. So soon after the babies arrive at the foster care home, they both get sick, like really, really sick with pneumonia. And one of the babies doesn't make it through one of the babies dies and now we just have one baby one baby boy who is slowly recovering from pneumonia now a few weeks pass by and a woman comes to the foster home and adopts the baby boy who is now in good health which is great news fabulous news in fact the baby boy becomes Kevin, Kevin Hines, and he joins his family, Mr. and Mrs. Hines, and two adopted siblings, a brother and a sister. Life is good. Life is really good and way better than the crack den Kevin was born in. Kevin is in a family with infinite love and support, and he's thriving. He's in high school, making good grades, involved in a ton of activities, theater, wrestling, football. He's a star, right? The kid everyone wants to have. And considering Kevin's humble upbringing, he is really thriving, right? Zero to hero for Kevin, for sure. By the time Kevin gets to his senior year, he's starring in the school play at a school with a really prestigious theater program and theater director. So it's a big deal that he's the star and he's been the star or at least the lead in many of their productions because this kid is super talented in multiple areas. And so he is starring in this play and it's opening night and the theater is packed. 1,200 people are in the seats. It's completely full. And Kevin is on stage and he looks out at the crowd and the crowd, of course, is staring back, waiting for some action or dialogue to take place. And Kevin is standing there for a moment. And then he bolts. He charges off stage and runs into the lobby and out of the theater. Just bolts for no reason out of the building. So his mom is there and the theater director is there. And they're both like, what the fuck just happened to Kevin? He's never done this before. He's never just dipped out of an opening performance. From this day forward, Kevin is different. Something is off about him. He's angry. He's fighting with his mom and calling her horrible names. He's going from being the dream teenager to a horror story, a problem teen who can erupt at any moment. 
As soon as he turns 18, on his 18th birthday, his mom, Mrs. Hines, kicks him out of the house. His dad picks him up, Mr. Hines. Mr. Hines knows that his son is troubled. He sees the same things his mother does. It's evident to Mr. Hines that there's something wrong with his son. His son is upset. He's shut off. He's cold and sad and, like, really, really sad. He's just not happy, obviously not happy. No one would mistake this kid for happy, right? You get the picture. Kevin is living with his dad, and this is after high school, and he's enrolled in college. He gets up early one morning, and he writes a note. He writes a suicide note. Well, actually, he writes six suicide notes, one to his mom, one to his dad, one to his brother, one to his sister, one to his best friend, and one to his girlfriend. He puts the notes in his backpack. He walks into his dad's room, wakes him up, and he says, Dad, I love you. His dad wakes up from deep sleep, and he takes off his sleep apnea breathing machine, and he is, like, startled. He's like, Kevin, what's wrong? Is everything okay? And Kevin's like, yeah, yeah, I just want to tell you I love you, Dad. He's like, oh, Kevin, oh, yeah, I love you too. Now please go back to bed. And Kevin Kevin takes his bag and he sits on the rug next to his dad's bed and on the other side and he's crying. He's sobbing and his head is just wrought with pain that he feels he has to end his life. And at this point, at this point, I want to, I want to stop the story because we're going to switch views here. Up until now, I've told you the story from an outsider's perspective. Now we are going to shift to Kevin's perspective. And for Kevin on that day, and for months leading up until that day, he had a voice inside his head telling him that he was worthless, ugly, horrible, stupid, a waste, a mistake. This inner voice, this inner critic was berating Kevin all day, every day, 24 hours, 365. He could hear it, and it was unbearable for him. He believed this voice. And it got stronger. and He saw proof of its claims, proof that he was worthless and that he should die. Kevin had extreme anxiety. The reason he ran off the stage at the theater that night was because when he looked out into the audience, he saw the faces of the people and his mind convinced him that they wanted to kill him. He was paranoid as fuck, having a panic attack. Can you imagine? Like the kid was literally going insane. Well, not realizing he was going insane. He just believed what his brain told him the way we all do, all the time. His brain said, Kevin, you suck. And Kevin said, yeah, okay, I suck. And this went on and on and on until Kevin ends up with six suicide notes the morning he jumped off the Golden Gate Bridge. But we aren't there yet. Kevin, Kevin's dad wakes up and he can sense that there's something wrong with Kevin because he tries to convince Kevin to come to work with him, to spend the day with him. But Kevin insists on going to school. Kevin gets out of the car, says, I love you one last time to his dad, boards the bus to the bridge. At this point, you might be like, okay, this kid is messed up. He's sick. He definitely needs help. And you're right, for sure. There are signs here that we can see now, now, as I tell you the story, years after the fact. But that's not how people reacted at the time. You see, Kevin was 
visibly upset. That's why his dad insisted on spending time with him. Kevin was sad, and he looked sad. When Kevin got on the bus that day to go to the Golden Gate Bridge, he was crying, sobbing, actually. Sobbing and talking to himself, yelling to himself, saying, I don't want to die, and what did I ever do to you? These two dudes are across the aisle from him, and one points to Kevin and says to the other guy, what's wrong with this kid? They both laugh and scoff at Kevin because he's so visibly upset and screaming out loud. We've all seen someone like this. Kevin's 19 years old when this happens, so he's a baby. He's a kid. They arrive at the stop. Kevin is the last person off the bus. He's sobbing still, streams of tears coming down his face. But he has a change of heart, and he has a voice in his head that's saying something else. The voice is, is, says, okay, I'm upset, and I'm crying. If someone just asks me if everything is okay, I will just come right out and tell them. I will tell them I want to jump, and then I won't have to jump if someone just asks me if I'm okay. Then as Kevin approaches the bus driver, the driver says, hurry up and get off the bus, kid. I don't have all day. This is very common for suicide victims. They build in opportunities to be saved. There's another well-known story of a guy who also jumped off of the Golden Gate Bridge. And in his suicide note, he wrote, If someone smiles at me today, I won't jump. And he died for one smile. And the same is true for Kevin, right? He's there on the bridge and he's walking. He's pacing up and down the bridge, crying and sobbing. Eventually, he stops at the railing and he's curled over the railing, just crying and crying. He's sad and he has this voice in his head telling him to end it, to jump off the bridge and be done. And and then, like an angel from heaven, this woman walks up to him. And she's like, hi, will you take my photo? And she's sweet and she's blonde and he's thinking, this is it. This is the girl who's going to save me, who's going to ask if I'm okay. So Kevin takes her camera and he's taking her picture and she's posing and she's posing and she's posing and she's posing. This lady's like really taking her time. And after it's done, she walks over to Kevin and she thinks I'm going to, she turns around. As she turns around, Kevin reels back and lifts his foot. He sprints forward up and over the railing of the Golden Gate Bridge. And immediately after his hands leave the rails, he thinks, oh, God, no, please, I don't want to die. Please save me. Boom. He hits the water. He plummets down 75 feet into the water, and he's completely conscious. He's using his arms to try to swim, but he's sinking. He can't get up. Finally, he swims to the surface, and his legs are motionless. He can't move them. He's trying to stay afloat, but he's sinking again and again and gasping for air, just swimming with his arms. The water is cold as fuck under the Golden Gate Bridge, by the way. Fifteen minutes of exposure will give you hypothermia. So Kevin's alive for now. He survived, but then this huge animal starts circling him in the water and the thing swims underneath him and it's circling and circling and getting closer and closer and Kevin sees this but he can't move he can barely keep his head above water and this thing gets closer and closer until it's underneath Kevin and Kevin thinks that he's going to be eaten that he jumped off the bridge and survived but now he's going to be shark bait 
I remember Kevin is completely conscious during all of this. But Kevin doesn't get eaten. The animal was a sea lion. And it was keeping his entire body afloat until the, ca- until the Coast Guard came and arrived to save him 12 minutes later. I-, I know this sounds crazy because it is. Kevin is one of only 36 out of over 2,000 people to jump off the Golden Gate Bridge and survive. Now, nearly 90 years after the bridge was built, it will no longer be possible, soon it will no longer be possible, for people to jump from the bridge to their death. The bridge will be safer for everyone because Kevin Hines and his father, Mr. Hines, have spent the last decade fighting to put a net around the bridge that would protect people from meeting their end. It turns out Kevin didn't want to die. It only took the attempt to die to make him realize that he was worth something. And he was loved and needed and wanted. You see, it turns out Kevin was having seizures as a kid. So they put him on anti-seizure medication. And then later in his teens, he got taken off the medication, put on a different medication, and then another. And the combination of these drugs covered Kevin's bipolar symptoms and later his bipolar schizophrenia, which is why he was hearing those mean voices in his head all the time. But he never told anyone. No one knew about the voices. It it also turns out that this is most likely the result of infant trauma. If you have a trauma as an infant, as a child, you carry it with you. If you have negative self-talk or if you have been told something ugly about yourself, studies show that you never forget it. It sticks with you. When you get abused that way, our brains remember it and it can damage our brains. Science proves this. Kevin says that he is not recovered. He's in recovery every day, and he still has chronic suicidal thoughts. But in his words, he says, they will never kill me. Kevin says that he found a way to be self-aware with his disease, and that has allowed him to survive. The only way to save your life is to purge the pain from your soul. You have to talk about it. You have to get it out and find someone to talk to so you can survive the pain one day at a time. Kevin spent the next 11 years in seven different psych wards before getting better. Now he practices and he teaches what helped cure him, what helps him get through his days by teaching self-love and self-care, self-awareness, by sharing his story all over the world, and by telling the truth. Kevin is doing work to prevent suicide. He's doing work with his father, Mr. Hines. And today, when he isn't feeling well, he lets people know so they can help him. He goes to work with his dad now, so to speak. When he's feeling low or confused or anxious, he lets people know. And he recognizes it. He recognizes the feeling. And he's honest with people about how he feels. There have been. Over 2,000 deaths on the Golden Gate Bridge because of the ease of access and the lethal nature of it. Many people go there to end their lives, and they've done this for decades. Kevin and his dad fought for 10 years to raise a net at the bridge. They faced major adversity, 
I know it may seem surprising to you now, but only a few years ago, when a toddler fell through a crack in the bridge to his death, the crack was filled within three weeks with no public comment, no need for a physical study, because it was the right thing to do. It was done. No one questioned it. When Kevin posed the question, why did you do it for that baby toddler when you won't do it for us? The response was, because that child was innocent. And that is what Kevin and his father were fighting against all those years. Kevin says that you have to stop listening to the inner critical voice in your head. We all have the inner critical voice. Every one of us who has ever been said anything negative to, we have an inner critical voice. It's built in. But you have to reverse it to survive. Kevin didn't know that back then. He just knew the pain, and it was too great to bear. Luckily, Kevin survived, and he has done something truly wonderful and necessary for us all. And Mr. Kevin Hines, I thank you for doing more good for more people most of the time. You know, this interview was one of the best I have ever heard. You must, I repeat, you must go listen to it for yourself. Listen firsthand with your own sweet ears. Listen to Cal Fussman's interview with Kevin Hines on his podcast, Big Questions with Cal Fussman. I will link it in the show notes at mytalkingdollars.com. Again, I cannot stress enough how eye-opening this was for me. It will be for you, guaranteed. The story is moving and shaking and groundbreaking and heartbreaking, and it has a message, a really important message. And I think we all need to share and be aware of this message. Let's smile. Let's be nice. Let's reach out and let people know we care. And let's all thank Kevin Hines for surviving that great fall and for spreading his truth and for going on Cal's show. And thank you, dear listeners, for being the angel genius babies from heaven that you are. I love you and I thank you. You can find all the show notes, links, and contacts for yours truly at my website, mytalkingdollars.com. Until next time, stay gorgeous, and I will be back very soon. Thank you. Love you. Bye.